This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The Denver Nuggets will take on the Sacramento Kings tonight. The Kings have beaten the Nuggets all three times they've played. The Nuggets only two games out of first in the Western Conference at 39 and 19 behind the Timberwolves and the Thunder, both tied at 41 and 17. The Kings just outside, and I mean just outside, of the regular playoff positions. They would currently, as it stands, be in the play-in tournament. They are a half game, only a half game behind the Phoenix Suns. Oh, or sixth in, so in, in the West. It's so tight. And uh, Sacramento on the road, 17 and 14. Of course, the Nuggets at home, extraordinarily good, 22 and 5. You talked about this game a little bit yesterday, Sandy, because the Kings and the Nuggets will meet for the last time in the regular season tonight. The Kings have already won the season series. So, on one hand, you look at it and say, well, okay, if they lose, the Nuggets lose this game, you'd rather not, but so what? You've already lost the season series. But you brought up a very interesting point. You don't want to get swept by any team, especially any team that you might potentially meet in the playoffs. And that could be a first-round series very easily, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's virtually now among New Orleans, Phoenix, Sacramento, certainly among those three teams. I, I don't know how to distinguish. They're one game three. apart. All I three. mean, uh, New Orleans lost 24. Phoenix has lost 24. Sacramento's lost 24. I, 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 New Orleans won 35. Phoenix 34. Sacramento 33. There's basically no difference. Even Dallas 33 and 25, although Dallas has played a ton of home games. And their schedule isn't as favorable coming down the stretch here, final quarter plus of, of the season. And then you drop down pretty far to Golden State and the Lakers, Golden State still projects as a losing team uh, based on uh, home and road games played so far. Uh, but they're, they're so tight. And yet, of those three, let's narrow it down, New Orleans, Phoenix, Sacramento, if you had to play any one of them in the first round, who would you not want to play? And at this point, I'd say Sacramento is the team Your I don't want to play. I'd Phoenix. rather play Phoenix, but they beat Phoenix all the time. And New Orleans, they beat two out of three. Yeah, I'm not worried about New and Orleans. And I'm not, not as worried in a about game series. New Orleans, although I'll tell you what, they they just pounded the Knicks. The other day, I know the Knicks are shorthanded, but they went into Madison Square Garden, and I, I think they won the game by 23 points, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, they just blew their doors off. So uh, they ride the roller coaster. I, I And Sacramento does too. Uh, but the one thing about Sacramento you got De'Aaron Fox from Kentucky. He's not afraid of Jamal Murray, also from Kentucky. And then you've got Sabonis, who's not really afraid of Jokic, although you'd think that Jokic would dominate Sabonis because he, it, it, Sabonis struggles against uh, the... Uh, Jokic, Jokic has the the body the, type to kind of the, knock the Sabonis body, around. People like he can play that, bully ball against Sabonis. Right, and... and uh, the Zubats, the Clippers, son, yeah. gives Sabonis fits. Right. Same Although reason. Sabonis had a triple-double against him yeah. the other night. But same so. reason. Just big, but, but big the, guy, the big, big body. Guy. But he's not afraid of Jokic. And it isn't, it not, it, by that I mean he believes not so much in his ability to hold Jokic down offensively, but he believes he can score on Jokic. Mm-hmm. He's left-handed. He's he's clever. Um, he's not dynamic. 
but he's clever. He's a smart offensive player, and he knows how to get to the foul line. Yeah, that's a big part of it, too. Earlier this week, because— I mean, Fox is a lefty, too, that lefties can get to the foul line. We look at the Nuggets in third place, and we know that Michael Malone has said that finishing with the West top seed is not a top priority, and it's still possible the Nuggets could do it. I mean, they're— they're, Possible. uh, They're only two out. Just not probable. It's not probable, but it's not impossible. But the especially after the win over Golden State, and, and I think your take on it is right. Golden State is not really all that great. People are they're still living off of rep to a certain extent. Sure, but the statement seemed to be made as as the Nuggets pulled away so definitively that the, the, the oh. gap between the two teams is is immense. And with all due respect to the Timberwolves and the Thunder, two teams who have uh, up until and the Nuggets only until last year were in the same boat. You know, never gotten to the finals, never yes. won the finals. So I get why people look at those teams and say, you're not as battle-tested. We maybe don't take you as seriously. But in those seven-game series, you've said it before and you've said it all year. What team are you picking over Denver in a seven-game series, presuming the Nuggets nobody. are healthy? Nobody. The answer is no With or without home court. Earlier nobody. this week over at FS1 on uh, his, his show, The Herd, Colin Coward was another one of the converts after seeing the way the Nuggets just ended up steamrolling the Warriors late. But Jokic is different. This Denver team, they're the Spurs with Tim Duncan. Perfectly built roster. Get ready for a dynasty. It's not going to be Shaq-Kobe dynasty. It's not going to have the drama of the Michael Jordan dynasty or the Heedle dynasty. And we've had some fun ones. But Jokic is the best player in the league without question. Jokic and Murray are the best combo. They have the best starting five, plus, minus. Only Boston is close. And Aaron Gordon's length defensively, and Michael Porter can be streaky, but he's gifted offensively. Add in a very well-coached team with just enough depth. They're winning the title. And I, I don't, I, unless, barring an injury, Celtics are the only starting five that's even close. And this Denver team is actually built for the postseason more than the regular season. Why? Because in the postseason, you shrink your rotation. So it'll be perfect. You'll get about three guys off the bench. Christian Brown's one of the guys will come off the bench. Reggie Jackson will give you a few points off the bench. But we talk so much about mobility, and I'm guilty of this. I spend so much time in the NBA talking about a collection of all-stars and mobility, and this team has one all-star in 10 years. It's Jokic. I, uh, he's right on all yeah, points. I, I think I think he really, and I don't always agree with, with Colin on things, but I think he is right there because it is, it is built around a completely unique centerpiece that the league, not only the, the, the fascinating thing about Jokic, and and he's put up video game numbers since the All Star break, is is I think you're seeing now a little bit of what the truly special we're talking Michael Jordan level players, in so much as Teams have essentially given up on the idea of how do we figure out Jokic. They have basically decided we can't. We're not really going to stop Jokic from doing whatever he wants to do. And we're just more or less giving up on that. We're trying to make sure that one of the other guys, preferably Murray, but somebody doesn't just go off on us every night and finish us off. Right. But don't you think that teams have come to believe that Jokic hurts him more as a passer than he does as a scorer. I believe and, and so. They can't really do but anything at the same about time, his scoring. Every time they do that, Jokic just puts up 35 points. Well, I know, but the, 
the high scoring games in the playoffs that he's had haven't always resulted in wins for the Nuggets. And I, I think that's where teams tend to well, tilt. I think, yeah. That's why I, I don't I think double teaming him makes any sense. No, teams First have stopped all, doing it. He can score through a double team, and a double team creates openings, and the Nuggets do, comparatively speaking, they do move well without the ball. They yeah. at least know where their spots are. And more importantly, Jokic knows where their spots are. I mean, what's Jokic knows where to find them in their spots, in their scoring areas, where they can do the most damage. And he's a hell of an outlet passer when the Nuggets right. choose to run. They can do that. And the Nuggets, uh, maybe a little more than the old Spurs, who really didn't run. No. Uh, the, the Nuggets can do it, and maybe a little more often at home because of the altitude, they're a little more incentivized to run. But they they can kind of hurt you in in just about every way from an offensive point of view. The only question to me is on the defensive end of the floor where they sometimes have lapses until it gets to the last five minutes of close games, and then they become the best defensive team in yeah. the league. They are what they want to be from night to night. And I don't think losing two games on the road to Sacramento earlier in the year bothered them very much. No, I don't get that impression. I think they losing did. at home right before the break, I think that got Malone's attention. Mm-hmm. And Malone doesn't like losing to Sacramento anyway because he coached there once and he was fired before he should have been. Yep. I I think they'll win big tonight. I, I think this is one of those games they'll get up for. They don't get up for every game. They don't have to get up for every game. But I, I think, think just they when they slept. think they love playing Golden State because they have a way of falling behind and then just reeling them in. And kind of taking their heart, yeah, they really do, and and shredding it. And I I I don't know what was said, but I don't know if you noticed in the post game conversations, Draymond Green and Jokic kind of yucking it up. And I'm saying, wow, that ain't like Draymond Green after a loss to yuck it up with anybody. And then I saw Kerr and Jokic in deep conversation with Kerr doing most of the listening. And I wonder if it had something to do with kind of the byplay that took place earlier in the year. It really didn't involve Kerr and Jokic directly, but remember Kerr said the one game Christmas Day, I think he went off and said, that, you know, Jokic fouls all the time or flops and people don't call it and it's, it's a joke and all this. And I don't think he meant it personally as a knock against Jokic, but I think Jokic took it that way. And remember when he hit the shot in the next game? The, the, I think yeah, it was the next game out in San Francisco, midcourt, and he's pumping his fists and very uh, emotional. In a, in a, and then kind of went off the court without too much of the what we saw the other night. And it, I said, wow, psychologically, could you imagine that two years ago, those post-game exchanges, yeah. when all of – the play went in Golden State's favor, and now it's shifted. And now Golden State is trying to hunt Denver down, and they can't do it. No. 
They, they really can't. And then, then that part of it, I think, is interesting as well. It's also worth noting, I think, with Golden State, you know, that's the first time that those teams have played since the passing of Dejan Milajevic, who was Jokic's youth I coach. imagine that was part of the conversation, too, with the Jokic. Warriors. I imagine Absolutely. That was, that was, that was it, part of the conversation. To be sure. Yeah. But it, it does feel, when you talked about the idea of double teams, well, yeah, people gave up on double teams. What are the point of double teams? The point of a double team is you cut off the passing lanes and the person ends up turning it over. Except that doesn't work with Jokic. You just left somebody open. So teams move you know, away. You know, when Jokic turns it over, it's just when he gets sloppy. He's sloppy. Uh, you know, right. when he, thro- he throws a high-risk pass and it doesn't quite the work. Other part of it the isn't, equation, doesn't come out of teams. The other part of the equation that, that teams are realizing with Nikola Jokic and why they're concerned about his passing is that while it's hard to quantify, when Jokic is passing well, the other guys get going. Michael Porter exactly. Jr. is likely to get hot because he's getting open shots. Right. Same with Murray. Same with Caldwell Pope. Even the same with Aaron Gordon. The, the problem is if Jokic gets going on the passes, now all of a sudden three or four of the Nuggets are feeling it, and now they're really, really dangerous. And so uh, the, the challenge of stopping Jokic in that regard is, is manifold. But... The, the point that Colin Coward made, I think, is very good. This is a team that is built for the postseason. Is More bench- so than the regular yes. season because they're not a 60-win And it's what I'm trying to put, point out while I, with no disrespect to either the Oklahoma City Thunder or Minnesota Timberwolves who deserve to be where they are. Right. But especially in the do. case of the Timberwolves, with all apologies to Anthony Edwards, who is phenomenal, those two teams to me look to be built more for the regular season than the well, postseason. We we'll, will find we'll, out. We'll see. We'll see. I, I I would actually think that Minnesota's had a little more playoff exposure than Oklahoma City. Certainly. And for that re- Oklahoma City is built for night to night action. They really are. They aren't big though. They 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 aren't terribly physical and I I think in terms of matchups, although they've fared well head-to-head against the Nuggets in the regular season, they might not give the Nuggets as much trouble in a postseason series. But I'll tell you what, they are good. Mm-hmm. They're well-coached. They're confident. They play the right way. They have uh, – this is maybe one of the more regrettable Michael Malone lines, and it was kind of a throwaway line that I – Probably when he said it, he wished he could have reeled it back. <laughs> that shot blockers are a luxury. Right. Uh, Chet Holmgren is no luxury. Uh, he and Shea Gilgis Alexander are the essence of the Oklahoma City Thunder, and they have good players around them who understand what they're supposed to do and how to play. And the, the Cody Williams' older brother is, right. a, is a good example. He's an All-Star caliber player. But the key to that team is Holmgren shot blocking. And Shea Gilgis, Alexander, floor, generalship, uh, even his showmanship right. at, at times. And he's not really a prolific three-ball guy. No. And he's, but he's averaging a, he's a, 30 a he's game. He's a phenomenal slasher, though. <laughs> I mean, really, really good. The game against the Kings tonight will be the, the tip-off of a whole bunch of important games. Following that on Thursday, they will take on the team they vanquished in the finals, the Miami Heat. That's a national game. On Saturday at 6.30 p.m., they'll get the Lakers, by the way. Avalanche and Nuggets on national TV yeah. a lot here in uh, Saturday, late February, uh, March. Down at number 38, uh, where we had our, our Avs rally a couple days ago, Saturday night against the Lakers. That's a 6.30 tip. An ABC game will have a Nuggets 
uh, watch party as well. Ryan Blackburn and Swipe will get together and talk about uh, the game. They'll do a little bit of a uh, post-game convo for you and giveaways during that. So go to number 38, check it out. Then they will take on Phoenix back here in Denver on Tuesday. That's a national game. And then next Thursday, Boston, the two best teams in the league, yeah. uh, Colin Coward opinion and as well as ours, uh, that will yes. also be a national game. After tonight's game, from a team that's already beaten them three straight times, four straight national games, all against teams that will, in some capacity, make the playoffs, I think. And it, it will be interesting to see how it shakes out because now the Nuggets, I think, are reaching a point where they have... They would never say it, but they have kind of slept walked through parts of the season. Well, yeah. I don't think I, they can do that anymore. I, I think some of the sleepwalking, to be honest, has come against teams like Sacramento. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I, I don't disagree uh, with and, you. And I'm not saying Sacramento isn't good. Uh, you, you can say your team played lousy without diminishing the, first the other two, The first two losses, effort. the Nuggets gave up 123 and 135 points. It is, it is hard They're for them when that. they aren't locked in. It's hard to defend Sacramento. You've got to be locked in. Now, you can stay in the game with Sacramento because Sacramento doesn't really guard that well. No. But if you're not ready defensively to play, that's a team that's capable of embarrassing you because they can score from the three-point line. They can score inside. They get fouled a lot. They have a couple of lefties who are their two stars in Sabonis and Fox. And I don't care how much you talk about the scouting report. Remember, he's left-handed. Remember, it's kind of the opposite from the usual defensive principles. It's hard to adjust because there aren't that many lefties. And the lefties that there are usually aren't as good (laughs) as Sabonis and Fox are. And the, the... the thing about the Nuggets, they beat Boston, right? Right. But you take the other top 10, 12 teams in the league, there's 6-14 and 14 against those teams. But then you look at teams like Phoenix, Dallas, Lakers, Philadelphia, Indiana, all the losing teams, and they're 32-5. and five. <laughs> Right. So they, they take care of their business, and some of these teams still think Lakers, Phoenix, Golden State, that on a good night, they can hang with the Nuggets, and they can't. Here's basically the trick, and we talked about it a little bit ago with the CSU Rams. The first loss of the year, when the Nuggets lost to Sacramento, 123-117. to 117. The Nuggets allowed 16 three-pointers, multiple uh, by a lot of the players, but also every single starter for the Kings had at least one. 16 for 34 from Behind the arc, 47%. shooters. And the Nuggets lost. In the Nuggets' second loss, that 135-106 blowout, they allowed 17 three-pointers. Again, all of their starters had at least one, and they allowed 50% shooting from three. In the third loss, much closer. Sacramento beat Denver 102-98. to in That Denver. was here. Yeah. In Denver. Now. And Fox went crazy at the end. Fox had, uh, had 30 points in that. But the Kings only shot nine for 33 from three. Only the fact that the Nuggets had one of their worst shooting nights of the year. They shot 39.3% as yeah. a team. Well, and it, that was a Against four, Sacramento, you right. should never shoot and under that was 40% a four point loss. when you're the Nuggets. But the trick for the Nuggets, and it is not as simple as just this one thing. I'm not going to give you the Instagram clicky stuff. But the Nuggets have to be cognizant. Like you said, they have to be locked in. 
You simply can't give away clean looks at three because Sacramento can hit them. And if Sacramento hits 45-plus percent from three again, the Nuggets probably will lose. But if the Nuggets can at least keep Sacramento from launching all those from the three, even when the Nuggets don't have their A game, they'll probably still win because they played an awful game in that 102-98 loss at I home. Tonight. And I, I, I think there's they still some incentive in to win tonight. You don't want to go over against anybody. You don't. You don't. Yeah, you don't. And they and they they haven't. I mean, they had trouble with Houston, but they won a game. They had trouble with Oklahoma City, but they blew them out in Oklahoma City in the first game between the two teams uh, this year. Um, you know, I, I'm talking about Western Conference teams now, obviously. Right. I mean, you only play the Eastern mm-hmm. teams twice, and they, they're 0-1 against Cleveland at this point. They're 0-1 against the Knicks. I get that. Uh, but they've beaten virtually every team in the league at least once, mm-hmm. and the only team in the conference that they failed to beat and they've lost to three times in Sacramento. So, but keep you know, this in mind. It's it's a little more interesting than you would normally think a late February game would be. But the first loss of the year, no Jamal Murray. The second loss of the year, no Michael Porter Jr. and no Kentavious Caldwell Pope. The third loss of the year. No Contavious Caldwell Pope, no Jamal Murray. Well, there were a couple of back-to-backs in there, too. The, the the Nuggets have not had their full starting five in any of their losses against the Kings. They're expected to tonight. We'll talk yeah. about it tomorrow, of course. No Avs get a big win. Sandy's confident of the Nuggets tonight at 7. The Buffaloes tip it off in about a half hour up in Boulder. But it is a Wellness Wednesday, which means it's time for me yeah. to step aside. Sandy Clough and Dr. Rick Perea We'll help you get your checkup from the neck up next on My Life Sports. Welcome once again to Wellness Wednesday. I'm Sandy Clough. Our checkup from the neck up every Wednesday afternoon at 530 on Mile High Sports Radio. And, of course, we're available via podcast throughout the course of the week. And we are in the midst, in fact, about to begin tomorrow. Look at uh, what the NFL Combine has turned into circa 2024. I want to tell you a quick story, Dr. Perea, before we begin. Peter King, the noted football correspondent, for various publications down through the years, including Sports Illustrated and NBC Sports. Yep. He's also worked at uh, uh, Newsday uh, out on Long Island covering the New York Giants and uh, worked in Cincinnati uh, for a time at the beginning of his career. After 40 years, he announced he was retiring the other day. And one of the reasons he gave for stepping aside at this particular time is that uh, he was growing tired of all of the, uh, let me see if I can clean this up, Blarney coming out of the NFL scouting combine. Hmm. And I don't think he was talking about the interview process that teams conduct. I think he was talking about all the, again, for lack of a better term, bull spit that emanates from the NFL scouting combine, including the continued proliferation of mock drafts from people who know absolutely nothing about the intent of various teams when even the teams themselves 
aren't entirely sure what they're going to do at this point, and that would include the Denver Broncos. We'll talk more about the Broncos in a second. But tell me, uh, when we talk about the interview process, Mm -hmm. what do you try to assess when you're in the room with a prospective prospect? Yeah. So just to describe for all the listeners and viewers out there, um, the place where we interview them, first of all, it takes place every day from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. at night. And the interviews themselves are 15 minutes long. Then there's a five-minute break for people to, to switch to the different clubs that request right. certain players. And then 15 more minutes, and it goes on like that from 6 to 11 every single night. It's, it's very – the people that attended are usually the general manager, executive vice president, head coach – usually position coach of the particular player. If it's a quarterback, it's a QB coach. And then they always have someone like me, a team psychologist, performance psychologist, to assess the, the psychological aspect. So for what I look for is everything. So for the moment they walk in, I want to know everything, their posture, what kind of clothes they're wearing. Do they look at us or do they just make eye contact in general with the walls? When they sit down, do they smile? Do they frown? Do they look at all of us? Do they lock at one of us? Do they lock in on the head coach? All of these nonverbals give us ideas of who they are. Then we have template questions that are we ask for every player, and then we have specific questions that go off their answers so we can really find out who they are. But at the end of the day, it's self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is a psychological word for self-confidence and we want to know their belief systems in their self you know one of the things about tj watt and i write about this in this month's mile high magazine is when i interviewed him in 2017 we asked every single one of our people that came in every one of our players we said what what's your goal in the nfl what what, what is your ultimate goal and we had players say things like become a pro bowl player um make a lot of money, take care of my mom. His answer was become a great teammate. Become Not a great teammate. Not an answer you hear all no, that often. No, and right then I knew, wow, this guy is selfless. You know, he's transcending self to help others. So I knew he'd be different. I, I'm not going to sit here and say I knew he'd become the player he has become, but I did know from the neck up he was very much a selfless player and was about we, we, we instead of me, 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 as so many of those players are. We talked a little last week about how different players at various positions might react in an interview situation. Sure. And the generalization is that offensive players might be a little more buttoned down Mm -hmm. and defensive players might be a little bit uh, idiosyncratic, if that's uh, yeah. uh, the right <laughs> uh, term, and uh, possibly a euphemism. Um, do you look for things that you've already heard about a player? I guess the better way to ask it, do you, or in your experience, do coaches, executives, yeah. go into interviews with preconceived notions? Well, of course you do. We're humans. But at the same time, we try to suspend judgment. There's a term called epoche. It's a French word for suspending judgment. You, We get trained in epoche from almost day one in graduate school. 
because you do have to suspend judgment because if you go in with a preconceived idea, then obviously you're biased. And, you know, people are biased. We, we, that's inherent. But from my position as a psychologist, I got to be as objective as possible. So even though you go in knowing a lot about a player, reputation, also his statistics and how effective they've been as a player, you really want to be objective because there's a lot of things I want to know from that player that's not known. Like, tell me about your family. Tell me about where you grew up, how you grew up. You know, so many – one thing that I don't think a lot of people think about, Sandy, so many athletes make it in the NFL because they've been had trials and tribulations. I mean, there's some incredible stories. Sylvester Williams, our nose guard from our Super Bowl team here in 2015, raised his little brother and little sister. I mean, it's, it's un, unbelievable stories that a lot of these athletes have. You know, the, the, the rich kid that lived in the country club and – you know, his parents sent him to every camp here and there. Those guys usually don't make it. They just don't make it because they're coddled. So the psychology of these players is very interesting because many of them have been through so many trials and tribulations, and that's the resilience that they've built up that's needed to make it in the NFL. You're not a medical doctor, but there are always prospects who come into the combine with some questions about their physical health, sure. well-being, uh, their background, recent injuries, how they're coming along. In fact, I've been going through some mock drafts or at least one or two players are projected to be drafted in the first round. And there's some questions about uh, their physical capacity, perhaps to play mm -hmm. right away Yeah, from day one. When you or do you ask about that to see what the reaction might be yeah. not from a medical standpoint, but to see does that tell you anything about a player's confidence, his belief system? Yeah, absolutely, his efficacy, his belief yeah. system in in his recovery and how he's going to handle this injury. Very much, you know. You said at the beginning, I'm not a medical doctor. Right. I, I'm not by training, but I'll right. tell you what, they're interdependent. You know, the the medical side we often deem the physical part is very much tied to the mental part is very much tied to the psychological part. You know, you have brain, brainstem, spinal cord, central nervous system, autonomic nervous system, and then you go on from there. But really at medical doctors use a lot of psychology every day in treating patients. They do. And we use some medicine that we are uh, we're familiar with, but we understand a efficacy or a belief system in an athlete. Cause some players will say, yeah, I have a sprained MCL, and uh, I don't know. It, it's 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 a mystery how long I'm going to be out. It's up to the the trainer how long I'm going to be out. And then other people will frame it like, yeah, I have a sprained MCL, and I'm gonna be I'm gonna be running in a few days here, and I know that the trainer is going to help guide me through it, but I'll be back in two weeks. And they speak with a strength and an efficacy that really influences how they recover. So it's really interesting to understand that. People with belief systems and efficacy, you know, we can we can manifest what we want to happen through psychology, but it's also through medicine, through the physiology of our body. I'll never forget when I was working for the Broncos, Steve Antonopoulos, a.k.a. Greek, uh, the longtime trainer for the Broncos, you know, he allowed me to work with the hurt players from a psychological perspective because we knew that psychology releases oxytocin in the brain which is very healing 
to all the tendons and soft tissue in the body. So we knew that psychology was tied and interdependent with the medical side, with the physical side. And when I was with the Broncos, we actually did that. And it made a difference. In fact, I think it was the major difference to me between the 2015 Super Bowl champions and the 2013 Super Bowl participants right. who are missing a lot of guys yep. due to injury, especially on the defensive side of the ball, going into that Super Bowl. And it showed in that game when things went wrong on offense, the defense really couldn't hold up its end. Yeah. And the game became a blowout. Two years later, the Broncos seemed impervious psychologically to any kind of injury. And I'm sure there were guys who were banged up. Yes. But people like Peyton Manning, DeMarcus Ware, who were hurt for much of the season, yeah. played throughout the playoffs. Oh, yeah. And Manning played a lot better than he had during the season. And Ware was a star in the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one of the three most valuable players, perhaps, on the Broncos during the playoffs. And I, with Vaughn Miller and yeah. uh, maybe Malik Jackson. Well, and one of the things that we did with DeMarcus is he hurt his back, but he came in with me and we made a script that he would say every morning about how his back is healing and how he's feeling better. And mm -hmm. he's literally telling his brain what he wanted his body right. to feel. Yeah. And afterwards, he was like, wow, this stuff really works. So, yeah, we. Yeah. We understand there's a real interdependence between the neck up and the neck down. I want to ask you uh, about Sean Payton and Russell Wilson, the ongoing uh, soap opera yeah. uh, that seems to exist. Uh, the other day in the Denver Post, the columnist Sean Keeler referred to uh, the two men as being uh, deserving of each other <laughs> because one's a born fibber and the other's delusional. Oh, boy. I think we can separate out. Yeah. Uh, exactly which one he's talking about. The born fibber, of course, is Sean Payton. And the delusional one, at least based on his podcast with former Bronco wide receiver Brandon Marshall the other day, uh, Russell Wilson was talking about winning two Super Bowls in the next five years, either here in Denver or somewhere else. Mm, Let's start okay. with Wilson. Yeah. Well, Does that I mean, strike you as delusional? It strikes me as very optimistic. It, <laughs> it, it, it depends yes. on, you know, I mean, I guess a lot depends on where he is. I think here, that, in my opinion, that's not going to happen. I think it's safe to say that. Um, to win two Super Bowls in five years, the probability of that happening is probably in the single percentage, like 4%. Patrick Mahomes is the quarterback yeah. of the Kansas City Chiefs who won three Super Bowls in five years. Yeah. And but people call that a dynasty. It is. It is. It's it's very it unusual. It is. And but two in five years. Yeah. No, I think what he's doing there is he's, you know, he's projecting. Pretty close. And he's, <laughs> used, you know, Russell Wilson has undergone a lot of things emotionally and psychologically the last two years here in Denver that he hasn't gone through before in his career. And so he's using all kinds of psychological techniques to cope with that. And I think yeah. one of the things I don't think are it's they healthy techniques? Well, as I you've mean, observed him. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it, I would call it delusional, but I would call it overly optimistic. I mean, if he's really stopped and thought about the probability of that, Patrick Mahomes won't win two in the next five years. Right. He just probably won't. not because well, that would be five I mean. and ten years. Exactly. And that's just not going to happen in the laws of probability and reality. It's not going to happen. Tom Brady didn't win five and ten years. I mean, I would say, first of all, Russell Wilson, I don't know how many more years he'll play because 
you know, you, he may play as a backup, but I, I, being a starter in this league, I'm not sure he has that many years left. But the other thing, too, is to even reach the Super Bowl is one thing. And then to win the Super Bowl is a another level of hierarchy that's very seldomly reached. So I think for him, it wasn't necessarily delusional, but let's just put it, it was uninformed and wasn't supported by any empirical evidence. Speaking of things that aren't supported by empirical evidence, Sean Payton at the Combine the other day in Indianapolis said uh, something to the effect that uh, – uh, the Broncos obviously are looking for the next quarterback, which uh, solves the big mystery as mm -hmm. to whether Russell Wilson and Sean Payton will be back together again in Denver in yeah. 2024. It kind of rules that out when he's talking about we can't afford to miss on the next quarterback. But he added after saying that, but fortunately, we're pretty good at this. Mm. I don't know where the we came from. Yeah, It really meant. I'm good at this right. in terms of finding quarterback talent. And he said, thankfully for us, there are a lot of people who aren't good at it. He's right there. Uh, he's <laughs> probably right there. Yeah. But how does he know that he's good at it? Exactly. He's never had to do it. Right. He's never drafted as a, a head coach. Right. Yeah. And, you know, picking someone up in free agency is completely different than drafting them. Because, that was Drew Brees. Yeah. You know, he picked Drew Brees up in, in, in free agency. But when you draft a quarterback, you have the privy to do the interviews like they're happening this week at night. Okay, that's number one. Then you can bring them out in your top 30. So now they come out right. to your facility. You get to, you know, your psychologist, your team psychologist gets to spend at least an hour with them and give them any assessments you wish to give them. So that's two contacts. And then you can bring them in a third time before the draft. So you really get to analyze these quarterbacks at all levels, including the neck up. He's never had to do that, and he's never done it, and we've seen that quarterback elevate to a high all-pro level. So for him to say that he's good at it, I think is ignorance. The root word of ignorance mm -hmm. is ignore. He's ignoring a lot of information there. So I, I think that he's misinformed to say that. But I'm not a, I'm not surprised with well, my, you know Sean Payton saying If they allowed follow-up questions, my follow-up question would have been when? Yeah. Have you exactly. demonstrated when this? Have you, right. But that's what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, guys that really speak from an ignorant base, they ignore a lot of information, Sandy. They just choose to ignore it. And so for him – um, in my opinion, this is my opinion, and I get to have it. I think he's a really insecure person on a very social level. And so when I see that in a person who's insecure, he may be totally different behind closed doors. Yeah. But boy, I think you're right. But he consistently uh, for public consumption. Yeah, he comes across as terribly insecure. Right. And so what he's consistently trying to do is supposition and postulate ideas and thoughts that make him look Convince good people that he has a history of developing quarterbacks, which he doesn't. Right, exactly. Uh, it, it convinced people that he's funny. Yeah. He's sensitive about that late in the year. He said that was the only reason I'd ever go on hard knocks is to show that I'm a funny guy. Right, yeah. Not the guy, presumably, he thinks he's portrayed as being publicly. So you said Peter King said earlier he was retiring in part because of all the bourgeois that's yeah, going on. Uh, yeah, at MNF. Yes, bourgeois is a good word. Here, here's what it is. Even if Sean, even if if Sean Payton is telling the truth, head coaches don't have a lot to do with analyzing quarterbacks. Let me give you an example, and developing quarterbacks. So 
when when you analyze a quarterback at the combine, it's done largely through again front office, head coach, team psychologist. But once you get them in your building, the head coach is just a spoke in the wheel. Let me give you an example. I've, as you know, I've worked with several NFL coaches that are quarterback coaches. Those are the ones that really dive in deep with the quarterback pre-draft, and especially when they get them in 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 house. So even if let's say Drew Brees did have a wonderful career under Sean, but it was this who was his quarterback coach? Who was his offensive coordinator? Those are the guys in the weeds with, with him daily. Day hour right. in the meeting right. rooms, not Sean Payton. Yeah. Sean Payton dips his head in and goes, We all good? We go with the game plan? Yeah. What are you guys thinking of running this week? He dips his head in. It's the quarterback coach that's developing these players. It's the offensive coordinator that's developing players. If you want to hear a name of the guy that develops quarterbacks, try Kenny Zampezi. He's now with the right. Atlanta Falcons. Right. It's right. not necessarily we'll head probably coaches. going to draft a quarterback. Absolutely. Or trade for one. Absolutely. Maybe even Russell Wilson. Yeah. Wouldn't that be interesting? Uh, Dr. Rick Perry is one of the foremost psychologists in the country, and he visits us every week for a checkup from the neck up on Wellness Wednesday, 5.30 p.m. on Mile High Sports. And of course, always available via podcast. Dr. Perea, the former psychologist at the 2015 world champion Denver Broncos. He's worked with the Rockies during more uh, of their successful times than less successful times. And he also worked years ago as the Nuggets were building the championship team they became in 2022-23. But most importantly, Dr. P spends most of his time helping middle and high school kids to reach peak levels, whether it be in the classroom or on the playing fields. Whether you're an everyday performer at work, at play, or at school, call Dr. P today at 720-287-0933. That's 720-287-0933. Or look them up at Dr. P at thinkonenumber4u.org. That's thinkonenumber4u.org. I want to shift gears here. I was watching... uh, a college basketball game last night between Colorado State and Nevada. Terrific game. And Nevada is leading by seven points with just a few minutes left. And it looks like it's pretty much over Mm -hmm. and a, a terribly discouraging loss for CSU. And I didn't really, in watching it, anticipate a finish Mm -hmm. to the game. CSU clawed away and clawed away, and Isaiah Stevens took over and made big shot after big shot, and all of a sudden, it's 74-74 with 2.7 seconds remaining in the game. Timeout is called. Nevada has to inbound the ball from Mm. behind the basket that they've just been scored on, Mm. all right? They throw it out to their best player, Jared Lucas, the little guard who was having a great game, but had just missed three out of four free throws. Mm. He's a 91% foul shooter. Mm. And with a game on the line, he only had to make really two out of four. Yeah. He missed three out of four. Mm. He takes the ball. He stops just short of midcourt and shoots as if he's laying the ball into the basket. Mm Mm-hmm. And just as you went on a layup, it banks off the backboard and goes right in. Hmm. And CSU loses by three. Hmm. How do you deal 
with something like that psychologically? That's my second question. But my first question is, from a psychological point of view, how strong does a kid have to be, be a 91% foul shooter, miss three out of four free throws with a game on the line, and possibly cost his team the game, and yet have the wherewithal to shoot a shot with confidence from beyond midcourt and make yeah. it yeah, to win the game. Yeah. Well, I mean, the scientific answer is to it. He was able to regulate and be on what's called the parasympathetic side of the autonomic, which is the calm side, which means you have no muscle tension, clear thinking, respiration, heart rate's down. But the way to get there is you have to have tools and techniques. So for whatever, I'm not sure what Nevada does with their you know, performance psychologist, but he probably has a technique to flush that. And you have, we have ways that you flush bad experiences and that you can get rid of them the next minute. There's replacement visuals that you can see in your head instead of that shot going out or missing, it goes in and you have these techniques you use. And so, and then the other, the, the one that everyone can use is diaphragmatic breathing. If you use, if you breathe through your diaphragm, the brain gets 20% more oxygen. When the brain gets 20% more oxygen, you have clarity of thinking, better decision-making. So any number of those things he could have done leading up to that. The other answer is unscientific is he got lucky. Okay, <laughs> You know, he threw it up there. And but it, maybe it, he was unlucky to miss the free throws. Right. Because it just struck me that something that would seem very easy for him yeah. under pressure became hard. Right. And what would be hard, if not impossible, making a shot beyond midcourt yeah. with a game on the line, he made look easy. Yeah. Well, it wasn't easy, regardless of whether he says it, it it was or not. I mean, the reality is he 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 broke the law of probability when he missed right. those three because yes. he's a 91% shooter. Yeah, yeah. So he's that's, going that's against right. the probability. Right. So now the probability really flips. The next shot he takes has a high percentage <laughs> yeah. to go in, and it went Even in. from beyond midcourt, and that's exactly what happened. I thought of something else last night. Uh, the team I follow uh, most closely in college basketball is Kansas. They don't lose very often at Allen Fieldhouse, but they lost last night to Brigham Young. Mm. They had a 12-point lead in the second half. You think the game's over. They're up by six with about five and a half minutes to play. They end up losing by eight, 76-68. And Bill Self, after the game, the Kansas coach, in talking about the game, was asked, what happened yeah. in the last few minutes that caused them to go from leading by six to losing by eight. And he said, I noticed this throughout the game, and you could too, in watching the game. Any fan could notice it. Our body language was terrible. Mm. Mm. We missed a bunch of free throws, and we sulked. Yeah. We missed a bunch of bunnies around the basket, and we sulked. Mm -hmm. He said, we always preach. To our players, no matter what happens, next play, next play, yeah. next play. And he said, in my opinion tonight, all we did was say, last play, last play, yeah. last play. I messed up. Right. I missed six straight free throws with a game on the line. Yeah. As Hunter Dickinson, their star center, did. Right. I well, thought that was fascinating that he attributed the loss strictly, almost strictly, to psychological yeah. factors. Well, but see, okay, that tells me a lot right there because that tells me that he doesn't have a mental practitioner 
on their bench working with them as they go because you you really have to in a basketball game so for example if let's say that happened in the first quarter or the first half right then you've got to say wait a minute guys we're at halftime the body language out here is unacceptable we got to change that now let's do a, what we call sit stress inoculation technique you take them through a little quick three minute technique to center their thoughts get them on the right path for success because it's like my rule you, there's, you should never have a bad day ever a person should never for those of you listening never have a bad day you can have a bad hour but never a bad day because you get you have a responsibility to shape your thoughts from that point on on a team in that respect there should never be a team that had bad body language the whole game a first quarter first half yes but then you get it you straighten it out there's a way to control that and shape your thoughts there's two types of anxiety there's somatic that's body cognitive that's thinking bad body language is somatic anxiety there's a way to flush that and so for him to admit that his whole team had you know in effect somatic anxiety bad body body he, he language said the whole he game saw that on, yeah. on the floor and, and in essence, in the second half not in, not in the first in essence second. he's he's admitted that yeah. so they teams have to have a practitioner right. on the sidelines to help players get regulated when that happens cuz that does happen it absolutely it happens to us it happens to everybody in their job no matter what you do. I have a friend that's a federal judge and I was watching her one time. I says, man, you need to sit up straight. You look like you're not really in command up right. there, right. you know? And then, so the next time I saw her, she was like this, yeah. she was, her voice was right. commanding and yeah. she had the room. Right. So all of us have the, the, the possibility of us not having good body language and especially basketball teams are, are one of those that we see often have that. We'll be back next week with more. You can tell from Dr. Rick Perea's commentary that uh, what he says is uh, kind of off the beaten path when it comes to uh, commentary on sports and other areas of life. We love having him on these Wellness Wednesdays. Check up from the neck up. 530 every Wednesday afternoon on Mile High Sports Radio. We'll see you next week.